You're listening to The Gateway Church. For more information, please go online to thegatewaychurch.com. Good morning. In case you didn't know, yes, the air conditioner is not functioning. In fact, it was stolen. At least the compressor and all of the copper tubing was stolen out of the portable AC unit. So, uh, first world problem, right? Uh, <clears throat> pray that the uh, situation gets rectified and it not be a barrier uh, to our being able to enjoy each other's company. And I've met folks from, who are passing through from out of town and new to town and family. So welcome, everybody. Uh, we're right in the middle of this series where <clears throat> we are teaching through the Apostles' Creed and we are looking to the writings of the Apostle John, the gospel, his letters, and revelation to find the, the scriptural underpinning, the foundation to these essential core historic uh, uh, elements that comprise the Christian faith. And today we find ourselves uh, looking at, as we've been going through this series, we're sort of building a basic vocabulary of faith and this one is the church, where in the creed it says, I believe in the holy universal church. Previous ver version said holy Catholic church. Catholic simply means universal, so they remove any kind of misunderstanding. But my question this morning, i start off with, does it take faith to believe in the church? You better believe it does, because one of the main reasons people in this culture, our country, this city, reject Christianity is not because they don't believe in God. It's because they can't believe in the church. G.K. Chesterton said, by far the most powerful argument against Christianity are Christians. Anyone guilty as charged? I am. It's just time for confession, all right? Raise your hand. Yeah, sure. Ask any skeptic, and you're going to get a few arguments maybe about, you know, God and faith and science, but pretty soon you'll learn that their real hang-up with the whole thing of the, the body of, of Scripture, the claims of Christ, the Christian faith, their big hang-up is with the church, mostly because... Christians have let them down. Anyone experience this phenomenon? Somebody not living up to your expectations? Yeah. Uh, or some church is disillusioned, disappointed, or maybe even damaged them. So it's so much harder to believe what the Bible says about what the church can be than what it says about who God is. And this has been such a long-standing problem. It's not just in the last, you know, generation. Such a long-standing problem that the authors of the creed made sure to include it. I believe in the holy universal church. And it's in the creed because believing in the church and believing in God are inexorably, completely, eternally linked. You can't have a relationship with the God of the Bible without dealing somehow, some way, with his bride, the church. Now, 
many, and some would even argue most, but many Americans say, look, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. What exactly does that mean? My experience suggests that what it means is I like Jesus Christ, but I hate the church. In many ways, I don't blame them. But this morning's passage, I believe, is John's way of telling us how the church should be in the world under three headings. Uh, Cast the net. We'll look at what the church should be. Feed my lambs. We'll admit the fact that we can never uh, live up to that. And follow me, we'll encounter. But how in him and only in him can we be the church, his agent in the world? So, cast the net. Not castanets. Cast the net. This is a deliberate parallel to another time in the, early in the book of Luke when uh, he's in the boat with them and they're tired and mangy and salty and smelly and they've fished all night with no luck. And he says, hey, throw your nets on the other side of the boat. I love it that Jesus was a fishing guide. That just kind of makes him relatable. Anyway, throw your nets on the other side of the boat. They do and boom, they land it big. I mean, enormous catch of fish. They, they can't catch any without him, and with him, they caught so many, they couldn't even haul them in. And that's a picture of what the church should, can be. Now, why do you think that Jesus shows up while they're fishing? That, doing that the very first time he met them. Yes, it was their occupation, but when he first called them, in the context of which he said, follow me, They were fishing. So what did he in turn call them to do, call them to be? Fishers of men. And a lot of people think that fishers of men means to you know, convert people, but it's a whole lot more than that. Because fishing is God's will for most Saturdays. A fishing is, is kingdom language. Bringing fish from one realm, the sea, into another realm, the boat or dry land. Symbols were so much more important to the ancient world than they are today. But any reader back then, anyone hearing the story uh, verbally or, or, or reading it, whether it be Persians or Egyptians or Hebrews or Greeks or Romans, the realm of the sea was always dark and cold and chaos and death. Paul writes in Colossians 1, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. But this means a whole lot more than just having our sins Forgiven. It means coming into a new kingdom under a new king. They pull the fish out of one realm, the sea, and into another realm, the boat. Jesus is saying, I want you to bring others from the realm of darkness to join you in the community of the king. 
I don't want you to just bring people in and get them coming to, you know, to your meetings. I want you to bring them out of one realm and into another. How do you bring people into a kingdom? I mean, a kingdom is a complex concept. Yet Jesus brings the whole thing together in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 and says, you, the church, are to be like a city set up on a hill. And he chose his metaphors very carefully. <clears throat> First time he talks about what eventually would become the church, he, he uses the word family, and then nation, and now city. Which means if you're a believer, then you must be connected with other believers in such a way that your community is like a small city within a city, a city set up on a hill, a city that the rest of the city can look up to and see. What exactly does that mean? It means that we're to become an alternate Des Moines, an alternate Atlanta, an alternate Winona, an alternate Dallas, an alternate London, an alternate city. An alternate city that has all, all of the same kinds of people in its surrounding community out there in here. I'm not saying that every single congregation must be made up of the exact same percentage of peoples of that city, but the whole church of that city, the whole church of Des Moines, all those who are lifting up the name of Jesus Christ better reflect the whole city or we are failing to be fishers of men and women. Not just the aggregate of persons, but the aggregate also of resources. What do we do with our money? We share it. What do we do with our sexuality and how do men and women treat each other? How do races and ethnicities get along? Out in the city, the races don't get along so well. Out in the city, the wealthy don't share their money. Out in the city, there are all kinds of things going wrong. What are we supposed to be doing? Merely having meetings? I don't think so. A city on a hill is how Jesus is wanting to show the world. What would it be like if there were a city where money wasn't an idol? Where looks weren't an idol? Where men and women treated each other as people, not as toys or objects or things? What would a city look like if Jesus Christ were king, instead of money, looks, power, fame, status, race, cultural, identity. That is, friends, our mission in this life, drawing people out of one kingdom into another. We're called to be an alternate alternate society, not a ghetto society taken away from the city, but an incarnational set city, a city within 
the city, where you live in community with people who might even make you more than just a little bit uncomfortable. Some of you are thinking, I got that already. Just look to who I'm sitting with. No, 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 no. <laughs> Just look at, though, who gets in the boat with Jesus. It's recorded there. Nathaniel. This guy is highly superstitious type. In John 1, uh, Jesus saw him way far off, like over the line of sight, another side of the hill. He, he knew that he was sitting under a tree, a fig tree. So when Jesus comes by, he says, yeah, I saw you sitting under the fig tree. And he knew he couldn't have. So he hops up and says, well, you must be the king of the Jews, the king of Israel. And Jesus kind of rebukes him and says, knock it off. You're only believing because I, I said that. You're not really believing me with your heart. So he's superstitious. Then you got Thomas climbing into the boat with him, who's substitious, right? That means he sort of under-believes. He's a hard-headed skeptic who won't believe anything unless he sees it. And guess what? Thomas's and Nathaniel's of this world, they hate each other. But they get in the boat together. And then you have John, the rationalist. You know, he's the first to think, it must be the Lord. And then Peter, who's the existentialist, you know, he's the first to act. John's think Peter's are always overreacting to everything, and Peter's thinks John's are, always, are just so boring, and they'd rather talk about or study something than get off the back of their lap and get anything done. They don't get along. And this, look, we're not talking about black and white or male or female or anything like that. It's just a bunch of cranky fishermen. Now, Throw into the mix race, culture, class, nation of origin, language, political preference, sexual identity, and you get the idea of who you are expected to get into the boat with. And this is crystal clear. He's called the church to be a community where people outside of Christ's lordship would never get along get along. He's saying, I'm calling you to be a community in which the world can see there is where you can see what human society ought to be. And if we're not that kind of community, we're not being the church God has called us to be. And I suggest this kind of community can only be found amongst Christ followers, amongst Christians, people who've moved from that one realm to another, not just people who go to meetings together, but people, believers that you know and are connected to and people with whom you are in community, where you really help each other deal with all of the things that come between you being you, you and other people, and you and God himself. And there's an earnestness to your relationship. There's an intentionality to your kingship. There's a substance to your community. There's accountability and submission and support and prayer and Sacrament and covenant and trust and discipline and sacrifice and resources and connectedness and love that is concrete, deliberate, and tangible. You th hunger and thirst for that? Man, I do. 
And I'm trying to, in a feeble way, describe to you this morning this audacious idea of radical community as an alternate society that dismantles the world's prejudices and stereotypes, this world-changing thing called the church and the basic building block of the church is, and this is deep. I mean, I hope you're taking notes. Are you ready? This is the key. This is what I talked about in the team meeting. This is the promise. This is, this is it. This, this is the secret. Ready? This is the awesome sauce. The basic building block of the church is simply this. Friendship. If you want to be on the mission of Jesus Christ in the world, if you want to join him in the renewing of all things, you have to learn to become true friends with one another and the people God brings your way. That's the key. A friend, you want to be a better church? Be better friends. Jesus said, shows up now on the beach in verse 5. And he calls out to them, Children, do you have any fish? And they answered him, No! Every translation says something different uh, for this pronoun. He doesn't use the typical word for friends, adelphos. Instead, he uses paideha. It is the word for children or kids. It's in every language, it's translated differently. It's the most familiar, intimate language. It's a slang word used only with close friends and loved ones. In the British English Living Bible, he cries out, lads. In the Aussie version, mates. In the French, ami. In Spanish, mijos. Arabic, Rafik, German, Kumpel. In Des Moines, guys, fellas, peeps, whatever. But here's the point. He uses that very same word in one of the most revolutionary portions of the Gospels. This is my commandment from John 15, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what the master is doing, but I have called you, say it, friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known He says, look, I'm telling you my heart, and I'm going to blow your minds because masters don't die for servants, not in the real world, but a true friend. And a true friend always lets you in and never lets you down. Always lets you in. A master and a servant no longer. 
friends. What kind of friend of you are you? Are you transparent, open, and vulnerable, or are you always spinning, using, and manipulating people? Always lets you in, never lets you down. He lays down his life for them. Are you unconditionally present? Are you unconditionally there for people? Or are you in relationships only when you can get something out of someone? You have respect, or where you can gain respect or power or prestige or connection? Do you use people, or are you there for them? And if you take a hard look at your relationships and motives, and you might be thinking, hey, I'm not bad at that, I'm a pretty good friend, really, keep listening. Because what Jesus says next, not just cast your nets, he says, feed my lambs. Notice he doesn't say, feed my lions or my rainbow unicorns or my eagles or my koala bears. He says, lambs. You ever been around lambs much? Lambs are needy. They're nothing like Hallmark cards. They're nothing, nothing like that. They're a mess. Cats, dogs, well, dogs anyway, they'll give you affection. Cats will take affection. But, you know, there's affection involved. Lambs don't. They look fuzzy. They look sweet. They're just selfish, messy creatures. They eat garbage. They'll run you over when you try to feed them, even when they're little. And they grow into be not the brightest creatures in the world. This is not an anti-sheep message. I don't want, you know, like emails from the Mutton Society or something. Nothing like that. Feed my lambs. And not those you choose, but the ones I choose for you. It's easy to be friends with people who like you or who are like you, people who amuse you, people who can do something for you, whose connection gives you some kind of power, and that's not what Jesus is talking about. Look at Peter. He was tight with the boss, God in the flesh. But when push comes to shove, when Jesus was being arrested and hauled away to be killed, Peter denies him, not just once, but three times, and then turned his back on the rest of the apostles and then ran to save his own skin. You're never going to be a friend, Jesus says. Why? Because the lambs will expose you. You're never going to be a true friend to people on which this whole church thing is built. It's impossible. Okay, you're right, I can't. So what can I do? Not just cast the nets, not just feed the sheep. Follow me. And he looks at him and says, Peter, one day you're going to stretch out your hands and be led to where you don't want to go. Jesus was forecasting the kind of death that Peter would die, that he was going to be crucified just as Jesus had been. But Jesus is saying, I was crucified, my hands were stretched out, and I was led where I didn't want to go. If you're ever going to be a friend, you're going to need a friend, be a friend in the biblical sense, 
which unfortunately is one of the most challenging sense of the word. It, it, let's just call it to be a perfect friend. What is that? The answer is that Jesus Christ says, look at me. I'm the only friend who lets you all the way in. His, nail, his arms were open wide. They were nailed open wide for you and me on the cross. That's as vulnerable as you could possibly get. And he went to the cross even though his father had come to him in the garden and given him a choice. Either you go to hell on the cross or they will be lost for eternity. And Jesus said, if there's any other way, let it be. Nevertheless, not my will be done, yours. I'll, I'll go. And he says, in that, I'm the only friend who will let you all the way in and never let you down. And only when he becomes your friend, only when you know that friendship Will you be free of your own efforts at self-salvation, freed from the pride that rips apart and destroys community? And if you're a true friend, let's get practical. <clears throat> if you're a true, true friend to about 10 other people, you know, in this church or whatever church you're a part of, and that you're friendly to everyone that you meet, opening up, becoming unconditional, following him, if your true friend to about 10 then outside of the faith, you're friendly to all kinds of people. That is how the kingdom is built. It's built along lines of relationship, kinship, friendship, being there to change the world through this kind of true friending, which is, I believe, the primary mission of this and every other church, we are called very quickly to do four things. Listen up. Number one, we are called to feast with him. Verse 12, he says, come have breakfast. If one, it's one thing to know what I've said, but unless it's a living reality in our life through prayer, and worship, becoming a true living experience to you, yes, even in the Lord's Supper. Until, unless it does, you'll continue to be a mercenary in your relationships. You won't be part of building the kingdom. But if so, if so, miracles can happen. And that's really one of the foundational reasons we come to the table each and every Sunday. To be reminded and for a chance for some people to cross the line of faith and let it be their first act as a follower of Jesus to do what he said to do and remember me. So feast with him. Second, fail with him. Jesus asks Peter three times, do you love me? Why three times? He's helping Peter face up to the facts. The guy had denied him three times. Pete, Rocky, you know 
You failed me. Peter says, I know. And each time, that's not all, each time Jesus asks, Peter doesn't justify, he doesn't deny, he doesn't defend. Yeah, I know, but I still want to love you. And Jesus just like mercilessly driving it home. Pete, you're a complete failure. I know. Rocky, you are a catastrophic failure of a human being. Therefore, feed my lambs. There's a close relationship between failure and feeding the lambs. What is it? I mean, he's driving it home. And what do you think the guy thought for the rest of his life? Every time he heard a rooster, what was he reminded of? Man, I did that. But it gets better. He says, after establishing the fact, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, the defendant is a catastrophic failure. Then he looks him in the eye, claps him on the shoulders, and says, great, now you're in charge. This is the kind of material I can build something on. Not the smartest, not the most spiritual, not the one that can quote the most scripture, not the one who can preach the best, not the one most talented, the guy who knew that he knew down deep in his knower, I ain't nothing. That's what he's saying. And the word feed is the word shepherd. Poimeanos. It's the word that we get pastor from three times. Jesus says, you failed. And three times, Peter, well, yeah, but I still want to follow you. I still need you. I still love you. I still want to be yours. And that, Peter, is what qualifies you, not your credentials. And I'll bring it home. Every time you hear a rooster, you're going to remember. Fail. Fail with me. Fail to let the gospel show you that you're more indebted to me than you could ever imagine. And you're loved more than you ever thought possible. Feast with me. Fail with me. Third, follow me. Peter asked in verse 21, one of the most comical things in the whole Bible, Jesus is drilling down into this guy's character and talking about his eternal destiny and talking about the God's will for his life and just building him up. And then Peter says, yeah, well, what about this guy? You know, we always want to change the subject, right, when he's really getting in our, our mustache. And what does Jesus say? He says exactly what Aslan says many times at the end of the uh, Narnia tales. I only tell you your story. I don't tell you anybody else's story. And that's what helps you be an amazingly good friend to others. Because you're going to recognize that God has a plan for the person you're friending, but guess what? You don't know what it is. You're not going to be able, therefore, to judge that person, are you? 
You're going to treat that person as someone who's on the path and try your very best to help move them along their path. You're not going to see, you're not going to be able to say, I see your path and you're screwing it all up. Instead, you're going to be careful. You're going to be respectful. You're going to be compassionate. You're going to be generous and you're going to be optimistic. Because remember from last week, there is a judge and it's not you or me. Best sermon I ever heard in my life from beginning to end. Stop trying to be general manager of the universe. This is Pentecost Sunday. One of the biggest temptations for believers is the temptation to become the Holy Spirit for other people. Last I heard, the job wasn't open, nor were they receiving, you know, resumes. Good news on the search committee, we've gotten a boatload of resumes in the search process. And pray for the search team as they are this week uh, working hard at discerning and, and whittling, the minute said, the list uh, down uh, as we search for the next pastor. Feast with him. Fail with him. Follow him. And last, fly to him. Verse 7 says, he threw himself into the sea. Right? If you'd written it down, he canniballed off the side of the boat. He dove in. Kind of different in that culture. He put his clothes on to go swimming, but, you know. Now, why is this important? Peter begins this chapter already knowing the gospel. But back in Luke 5, when he realizes that Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God filled with power, when the great catch of fish is hauled up on the boat, what did Peter do? He falls down and says, get away from me, I'm a sinful man. Back then, he didn't get it. He didn't understand the gospel. He feared rejection and failure in anyone's eyes, and he saw himself as a sinful mess. And this time, the exact same dynamics occur. Jesus reveals his majesty, a huge catch of fish. But what's he do this time? He jumps in the water and swims to him as fast as he can. The first time, he tried to get as far away as possible, but this time he's trying to get as close as he possibly can. He doesn't know why. He just knows something has happened, and I want some of that. He knows Jesus Christ died for him despite his denial, despite his, his abandoning him, Maybe, yeah, maybe he's going to rebuke me. Maybe he's going to make me go back and through the whole thing. I don't know. But all I do know is I got to get as close to him as possible. He might make me face some hard things. But in the end, I believe there's something great there. So fly to him. He'll make you something amazing. He'll transform your life. Yes, he'll forgive your sins. And he'll fill your life with purpose. And he'll invite you into building the kingdom with him through this amazing, mystical, magical, frustrating, maddening, fallible, goofed up, jacked up, dysfunctional bride of his called the church. 
who he's madly, sacrificially, head over the heels, wildly in love with. He'll make you his friend and in turn give you the power to become other people's friends as together we live into the church he's called us to be. This has been another episode of the Gateway Church Podcast. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.